0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 27th of July 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Dr. Ian Musgrave, who you know very well. But today you'll be finding out a lot more about Ian the Scientist, the amateur astronomer and astrophotographer. And as usual, Ian will also tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky. And I'll be giving a brief news roundup as usual. So let's cross to Adelaide in Australia for today's show. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Today we are devoting this complete episode to someone very familiar to Astrophys listeners. For the last 12 months, Dr. Ian Musgrave has presented his What's Up Doc segment, where he tells us what to look for in the night sky, astrophotography tips, and in Ian's Tangent, he gives us a deeper understanding of astronomical phenomena. Today he will do all that, but first we're going to find out more about this erstwhile producer of the fantastic AstroBlog. Ian has a doctorate in pharmacology and is an expert in toxicology and is a senior lecturer to health science and science students, nurses and dental students at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. He supervises honours and PhD students, performs and publishes research, he's a journal board member, allocates and reviews journal articles, reviews grant applications and provides expert advice to Australian media on a huge range of topics from toxicology to the scourge of the anti-vaccination movement. He was recently nominated for his long-time contribution to science communication in the soon-to-be-announced Unsung Heroes Award Ceremony as part of National Science Week. So tell us where you grew up as a child, please, Ian. Tell us a little about your school days and what prompted you to study science throughout your school days. Well, I grew up
1: in Brisbane. In fact,
0: I grew up on what was at that time the outskirts of Brisbane, our
1: backyard faced onto several hundred acres of untrammeled bushland. And because we were out at the very edge of suburban Brisbane at that time, the skies were incredibly dark. So from my backyard, I could look up and see beautiful, pristine skies. And on my afternoons off, my brother and I would just walk across the road into all this bushland where there was birds and animals and snakes and yabbies fish in the rivers, all sorts of amazing things. And so my love for both biology and my love of astronomy started basically at the same time. Of course, at this time, this was the start of the space race. I was born around about the same time as the first satellite went up. As a young child, you could not be healthy but be exposed to the space race and humans' first attempt to get to the moon. So at the same time, I was being amazed by the sky. I was being amazed by humans first following steps into space and then out steps on the moon. And, and let's not forget the robots. At the same time as Americans were attempting to put humans on the moon, the Russians were putting robots on other moons, sending robots to Mars and Venus. And so against all this background these all these amazing things happening. So it's not surprising that a young person who was interested in spaceships was also interested in astronomy, but was also exposed to the wonders of nature in their own backyard would be drawn to science generally. This is one of the reasons why I tend to get asked a whole bunch of different radio stations due to my varying interests in both space and science generally. I have a very, very broad background in science.
0: Very good, Ian. So after your first degree, you then completed your doctorate in pharmacology. What sparked your interest in this field? Well, I started off being interested in how nerves
1: control blood pressure and one of the interesting things we were talking about at the time was how stress could affect the ability of nerves to react and maybe by having the stress hormones could increase the nervous activity of the heart and therefore drive up blood pressure. As a result of that, I started becoming more interested in the molecular features about how nerves are controlled. And of course, one of the best ways to dissect out nerve control is to use drugs. And so my interest in drugs initially began as tools for probing nerve function. Of course, if you're interested in how drugs affect nerve function, eventually you'll work out how drugs can be used to alter nerve function in both health and disease. My research at the moment which is looking at how chemicals derived from natural products
0: could be used
1: to treat Alzheimer's disease.
0: Fantastic. So that's your current research and you're supervising some PhD students. Can you tell us what perhaps one of your PhD students is researching? Being
1: interested in natural products. A couple of things come out of that. One is the toxicity of natural products. Katie, who's just finishing up PhD with me, is looking at how the neurotoxins that are elaborated by cyanobacteria and enter into our waterways could affect uh, nerve development and how this might affect our current levels of water safety. So we have various levels of sodobacterial toxins in the water because they're almost impossible to get rid of. And what you can do is you can knock them down to very, very low levels and try to aim for levels that are 100-fold below any possible act on the human body. Some of these might have long-term effects that are not quite clear, and she's been researching that. Looking at how some natural products that derive from, for example, tea can possibly be involved in combating Alzheimer's disease, some of these same compounds could be involved in acting as a microbicide for HIV. Now, HIV is a virus which gets into the body by a variety of roots, and it seems that a protein that has a similar three-dimensional structure to The amyloids that are involved in Alzheimer's can assist HIV to infect cells, and the sorts of compounds we've been using can prevent that amyloid from forming and therefore can reduce the infectivity of uh, the HIV virus. So that's one one unexpected direction that our research took us by uh, concentrating on the amyloids that are involved in Alzheimer's disease. We found a potential therapeutic which might be useful in a wide range of other diseases,
0: and may also be
1: useful in trying to combat the spread of HIV.
0: That's fantastic, Ian. Now, we are the Astrophys Podcast, so let's look into now your life as an amateur astronomer, an astrophotographer and renowned producer, of course, of the Astro blog. Can you go back to your passion for astronomy and tell us about your first activities as an amateur astronomer?
1: My first activity as an amateur astronomer was blue-tacking uh, my father's binoculars to my windowsill so I could <laughs> sketch the craters of the moon as it rose where my bedroom was. The moon rose almost directly outside my window, so by blue-tacking Dad's binoculars there, I could have a really stable platform, and so I did quite a lot of lunar sketching. I don't believe any of my childhood sketches have survived from that time, unfortunately. Later on, through Scouts, I got to look through telescopes, I spent a lot of time lying out in the backyard just looking at the Milky Way. When I was growing up, our backyard was all this bush with no lights, no nothing. The Milky Way was really quite easy to see. And so I did a lot of visual observing. I painted astrophotography quite early. I managed to inherit some old box brownie black and white cameras. And uh, I tried to set them up as astro cameras by doing long exposures with these things. And it wasn't horribly successful because, of course, you you tend to get trailing. But a couple of years ago, I managed to find some of the old negatives. In those days, you'd you'd save up all your pocket money and then you'd wander off and try and get your photos developed. I found the old negatives. And using modern scanning technology, I was able to... Scan them and pull up and I pull up some things and I managed to get some uh, halfway decent images of the Southern Cross and also a partial solar eclipse which was quite amazing.
0: Fantastic, Ed. Now, what advice would you give now to someone who has expressed an interest in astronomy and wasn't quite sure where to start? The obvious
1: thing is to start is to Look at the sky. Going into the backyard, looking up into the sky, looking at the things that you see is really still quite amazing. You don't need huge amounts of equipment. And also, as you become more and more familiar with the sky and able to navigate your way around it, you get a better feel for the sorts of things you'd like to do. As an astrophotographer, I tend to concentrate on planetary photography, comets as well. Other people find the fake fuzzies really amazing. One of the first telescopes I looked through was in Scouts, so we were shown Saturn, and that view of Saturn has always stayed with me decades after. First, you get yourself a good pair of binoculars. Yeah. A good pair of binoculars, it's a lot cheaper than even the cheapest telescope. They're really portable. You can take them out to the dark sky sites really, really easily. These days, they're easy to mount on tripods, so you can have them nice and stable. With modern mobile phones, you can hold your mobile phone up to the lens and take a photograph of the moon or four deep sky fields and you'll get some good photographs. Or you could do what I did back when I was a kid, which is, you know, it's low tech, but it works really well, is that you sketch what you see through the telescope, through the binoculars. Really simple. This trains you for looking at the sky and you get a feel for the sorts of things you would like to look at. In Australia, we've got some fantastic clusters. We've got some of the best globular clusters in the sky. So that will get you acquainted with everything that's in the sky. It will give you a feel for the sorts of things you look for. And also, for the very first time, when you finally, like I did, you finally, finally earn enough money to buy your first telescope, even if it's a wobbly, rickety thing, you've got a good idea what you're looking at. You know, If, never, if you haven't been looking at anything uh, other than the unaided sky before, and you get your first telescope, you're sticking the biggest, baddest lens you can get. You have only have no idea what you're looking at. And so this graded approach through just looking at the sky, then using binoculars to familiarise yourself with the sky means that when it comes to a telescope, you'll be thinking about what is it I actually want to look at, and this gives you a feel for the sorts of the scopes you should be trying to purchase. I mean, my first telescope was a little Chinese refractor. 50mm refractor. You don't get very much magnification out of that. The scope was just two holes drilled through bits of metal. Yep. Um, and it was incredibly frustrating to try and uh, focus on something. But once you, if, if you knew what you were looking for, the bright planets were really easy. I mean, the first time I saw Jupiter through, uh, through that was just astonishing. And my first view of Saturn was absolutely fantastic. When you're buying telescopes, folks, make sure that you get decent tripod. You can have the best optics in the world. If your tripods rickety and, and won't stay solid, then you're going to be spending all of your time chasing things all over the sky. I set up my little Tasco-like telescope on a small table with the completely inadequate legs, focused it on the crest of the moon going down above the horizon, and I caught an occultation of the Pleiades straight out of the box. I've never seen seen it since. Uh, But you have to imagine one of the first things you see when you look through a telescope is to see an occultation of Pleiades uh, with the crescent moon. That is just something mind-blowing.
0: Fantastic, Ian. Now, before we move on to cameras, we'd, of course, advise people beginning to join their local astronomy club wherever they happen to be. There's a lot of them all around the country and in most countries. Can you tell us what equipment you're currently using, Ian? How long have you
1: got? My current equipment includes my eyes. I've got a pair of 10 by 50 binoculars, which I have a tripod mounting for. I still have my 50-millimeter telescope that I bought back when I was a teenager. Wow. And it's very useful for when I go camping because my other telescopes are not quite as portable. But the little 50 mil, I can just pick it up, uh, knock it down into a small space, whack it in the the back, and it's absolutely fantastic. I have a 144-mil refractor this has been my workhorse refractor for most of my uh, that was a gift from my beloved life partner and I think she possibly regrets uh, giving it to me because I spend a lot of time on that and I've watched transits of Venus with that I've watched eclipses a wide range of photography with it it's a really good little workhorse for planetary stuff it's fantastic for planetary stuff then I have a eight inch Newtonian which is fantastic it's got motor drive I also still have the six inch telescope that I made with my dad. My dad and I made a telescope together. My long term plans is to get the mirror silver to convert it into a, uh, into a Dobsonian scope and make that a, a nice little portable, a six inch portable Dobsonian that would be really cool for going camping.
0: Can you tell us about the cameras you are currently using to capture images? Okay. Well, for everyone who's expecting a a long rant
1: about all the fantastic cameras I have, my cameras are a a Canon Ixus point point-and-shoot. I have a DSLR, which I can attach to my telescopes, which I don't use as much as I could, Simply because I can't remember the settings. Every time I want to do astrophotography with it, I have to spend half an hour reading up on the settings. Need to buy myself for Christmas is a remote trigger for the camera, so that I don't have to actually press the button. And the other thing is to get a new T-junction to attach it to telescope. My other piece of equipment is a webcam, which I've converted into a CCD cam. Most of my high resolution planetary imaging and uh, high resolution lunar imaging. Is with a uh, $100 uh, webcam which has just modified uh, to the ACCV cam. So all of my stuff is, you know, pretty basic, pretty cheap. But with this basic, cheap equipment, you can get some really good results.
0: Now, there are some amateurs whose equipment is worth more than a car, and in some cases, more than a house. But there are now some fantastic ways for amateurs to use high-end remote telescopes, and there's quite a few all around the place. Can you tell us about one of them, please, that you work with, and that's the i-telescope. I telescope iTelescope? telescope. They started
1: out many years ago, and I joined up with them back when they were had an entirely different name, which is now going to elude me. But their first Australian telescopes were set up on the River Murray, not far from where I live. And I've been taking images with them for several years now. Now, different remote telescope uh, groups have different kinds of equipment with different objectives, and some remote telescope groups have telescopes that are suitable for planetary imaging. The eye telescope telescopes are pretty much all devoted to deep sky imaging, Um, and it's evolved over the years. So one of their latest acquisitions is a spectral grating for one of their telescopes, so you can now take uh, spectra. And it's it's not just a... I mean, they've got some really good telescopes ranging from wide-field telescopes, so you can uh, 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 take images of huge chunks of the sky... To very narrow field telescopes, so you can do very deep imaging. The telescopes themselves, the the optics are are very good. Also, the CCD cams. Each CCD cam has pluses and minuses, so they have a range of different CCD cams on their telescopes for different purposes, and the different filters. So, um, for those of you who are interested in color astrophotography, uh, what usually happens is you have is you use different filters to obtain red, green, and blue images, and then you merge those red, green, and blue images together to make a colour image rather than just using a simple coloured camera. There's a number of reasons for this, one of which is that having a colour camera, you've got to have dedicated pixels for different colours, uh, whereas you use a black and white CCD camera, all your pixels are dedicated to gathering light, yep. so you have a better bank for your buck in terms of sensitivity. But as well as those, there's a whole range of other filters. For example, you can have filters for hydrogen alpha, filters for oxygen, filters for sulphur. So you can do really fantastic images using colours that based around uh, the various emissions. And some of the, some really fantastic images that are done by people are based around assembling colors from different narrowband filters Uh, there's what's called the hubble palette which if my memory serves me correctly is hydrogen alpha oxygen 3 and sulfur and you can get some brilliant images using these different color palettes specific bandwidths another thing that i do is to catch uh, near-earth asteroids and so uh, this is uh, challenging because near-earth asteroids because they're so close uh, parallax is uh, a real issue and making sure that you put your point and uh, they're moving so fast. So making sure that you're pointing your telescope at the right place at the right time is a lot more challenging than a lot of our other objects. Other things you can do with these telescopes is uh, monitoring variable stars. Uh, and one of the things that I'm hoping that the eye uh, telescope community can get together is to start uh, looking at the exoplanet PD-115 which may be a an extended satellite object, and so by uh, monitoring the uh, the brightness of the, of the uh, host star, we might get a better idea of uh, what this object is. I telescope members have also taken part in monitoring comet P67. That was the target of the Rosetta mission. We also take part in asteroid monitoring for the upcoming upcoming OSIRIS-REx mission. OSIRIS-REx is actually on its way now, but uh, we're still monitoring uh, asteroids to provide background information for this mission. Okay, Ian, social media, how is that being used? Social media is being used in a number of different ways. and One of the big impacts is the rapidity with which information can get out you can get information out really, really rapidly. And if, for example, if you're looking for uh, a meteor storm predicted from uh, a new comet, you can get the uh, predictions out really, really rapidly. Um, you can get, uh, for example, the information about the new uh, galactic supernova Assassin's 17 HX which uh, is uh, continuing to uh, increase in brightness. and So it's now around about magnitude 9.4 and is very, uh, in reach of amateur instruments quite easily and may indeed become visible in uh, binoculars uh, if it keeps on going at this rate. That information is coming out really rapidly um, through the use of social media. We can share our images rapidly the new uh, Russian satellite Maya, which is apparently um, uh, not uh, doing what it's supposed to do. All that can be um, followed in near real time. And again, because social media reaches across the world, you can be alerted to things that are happening uh, that can be uh, seen in the Americas so that you're ready for them by by the time that uh, night falls in Australia. And again, we're talking about... uh, near-earth uh, object passes where you know, they're very close, there's lots of parallax and you really haven't much time to do the Social media has a, had a huge impact on that. Not only can uh, people share information rapidly but they can share scientific information.
0: Fantastic. Now the mic is all yours Ian and you have the opportunity now to give us your favorite rant or rave about the challenges we face in our quest for knowledge or education outreach, that's
1: a bit hard because, um, as you as you mentioned earlier, uh, I'm in uh, one of the finalists for the Unsung Heroes of uh, uh, Science Communication Award in South Australia as part of National Science Week. Uh, and at the same time as we have all this information about uh, sky and space circulating through Facebook, at the same time we have this um, the flat society is is reviving. Uh, we have people who uh, believe the International Space Station is a is a giant balloon and uh, we've never got into orbit. And so the, the the challenge is twofold. The challenge is that by the time truth has got its boots on, a lie has got around the world. Uh, and the other is that, uh, people, uh, not trust, uh, trusting, uh, I don't know if it's worth not trusting authority, but, uh, not trusting conventional sources of information, uh, especially if it disagrees with their, uh, worldview. At the same time, we have these networks of citizen scientists who also have this networks of, uh, people who if you like, are sticking their fingers in their ye- ears and saying, we can't hear you. And this is, this is a really big challenge. Uh, vaccination denial, um, the new anti-fluoride movement, uh, global warming denial, all those areas where, uh, the thought leaders in these areas, the people who are making the most noise and pushing out the most misinformation. And, uh, it
0: can be really quite difficult. Very good. Now, Ian, let's move on to one of our regular segments. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the night sky? What's up in the night sky? Well,
1: lots of things, lots of things. For those of us in the Southern Hemisphere, as I've emphasised over the past few uh, weeks, uh, for us, it's the best time to see Mercury in the evening. And for for the next uh, fortnight or so, Mercury is going to be really high. Um, it's visible easily for at least an hour after uh, sunset. For those of you, uh, by the time this podcast goes out, you, know, you will have missed um, uh, Mercury being close to the thin crescent moon, but I've been watching it over the past few nights. Mercury's been closing in on Regulus, and uh, you will have missed the, uh, the 25th where Mercury, Regulus, and the uh, thin crescent moon are all within two degrees of each other. I will assure you it would have been spectacular. The moon will leave Mercury and Regulus behind, but um, Mercury will continue to climb into the evening sky. Regulus will drop uh, behind it, and if you've been watching, you can watch the pair pull apart as uh, Mercury climbs, and you can see it move from day to day. Mercury's moving that fast, so it's really easy to see the difference in position from day to day. Meanwhile, the crescent moon is climbing up towards Jupiter. Jupiter has been our constant companion uh, in the night sky for many months. However, it's beginning to lower towards the western horizon and over the, the next few weeks, it'll come closer and closer to the horizon. But over, uh, over this particular week, we'll see the uh, crescent uh, moon waxing as it comes towards Jupiter, and on the 28th and the, then on the 29th, uh, Jupiter and the Crescent Moon will be reasonably close together and look quite nice. Also, Jupiter has, uh, been very close to, uh, Beta Virginis Parama, But now it's moving back towards Alpha Virginis Speaker, the brightest star in, uh, in Virgo. And at the moment, it's almost roughly between the, the pair. And so, uh, on the 28th, you'll have a triangle formed by Parama, uh, Jupiter and, uh, the Crescent Moon. And the following night, you'll have a, uh, a triangle form by speaker Jupiter and the crescent moon, and that will look very nice. And then moving on, um, we will see the uh, the uh, waxing moon come very close to Saturn. Uh, it will be uh, closest to the to Saturn on August the third. So for those of you who are not entirely familiar with uh, with Saturn, Jupiter is really easy to see. It's obviously the brightest uh, object in the northwestern sky apart from the moon that is, whereas Saturn is, is uh, a bit dimmer and can be a bit harder to find. It's currently sitting uh, on top of the uh, dark rift that uh, runs through the Milky Way, although of course if you're in a suburban location that can be a bit hard to determine, but on the 8th it'll be right next to the, to the waxing moon and so it's the brightest object next to the waxing moon and it's fairly easy to see. Uh, and if we move to the morning, our friend Venus uh, is beginning to head towards the horizon. So uh, we've seen over uh, the past few weeks, we've seen Venus approach the Hyades, uh, go between the Hyades and the Pleiades form a second eye for the constellation of Taurus, the Bull. And now it's heading towards the constellation of Gemini. But initially, it'll form a nice triangle between Aldebaran and and the uh, bright stars of of, of Orion. So you'll see uh, a nice triangle formed by Aldebaran, Venus, and Alpha Orionis. Uh, And that will look very beautiful in the morning skies. On the 27th of July and 28th of July, Venus is very close to the bright star Zeta Tau, which forms one of the horns of Taurus the Bull. And then as it continues on, it'll head into the Gemini and come very close to some of the dimmer, dimmer uh, stars uh, that are there, they're relatively bright of course but uh, they're not the uh, major stars of Gemini but it will be, still be interesting to see them come close to Mu, Geminora and uh, Eta Gemini before it moves through the body of Gemini so that's something to to look forward to. Coming up is a rather weak meteor shower, uh, the Southern Delta Aquarius, fairly good for, for, for southern hemisphere people at this time of year. They're occurring, of course, uh, at the, the, uh, the constellation of Aquarius, and they're at their maximum on, on the 30th. Fortunately, the uh, waxing moon may interfere a bit with this, but... They're not particularly spectacular. You can expect to see a meteor once every five to ten minutes or so, depending on whether you're in a suburban location. But at the same time, you have some meteors coming from the of Trinids and the upper Capricornids. So with all three meteor showers together, if you're up in the uh, early morning and uh, looking towards the north, you should see a, a few meteors in the morning sky. You don't expect to see many. But, again, you'll see more than, uh, than uh, you would expect to normally.
0: Fantastic. Always something there to look forward to. Now, Ian, do you have a tangent for us this week? Well, I, I do, but I'm going to re- to return to the
1: tangent uh, we talked about last week. Where, uh, no remember We talked about uh, occultations, and we're talking about the occultation of... Uh, uh, New Horizons New Target, um, uh, 2014 MU69. And at the time we talked about it, uh, they had failed to, um, pick up an occultation of that, uh, of a star by that, uh, uh, uh planet, or minor, minor planet, sorry, uh, icy bit of junk in the outer, in the uh, outer Kuiper Belt. And so um, there's lots of speculations whether it could be uh, a really bright object instead of being a dark object, uh, whether it could in fact be a binary object, uh, whether it, uh, uh, and other reasons why it may not have been uh, picked up uh, by the occultation team. Um, and it turns out that the uh, simplest explanation that they hadn't got the orbit quite right is most likely the correct one. Uh, the uh, flying telescope SOFIA from uh, NASA uh, picked up an occultation uh, using uh, new uh, orbital uh, measurements from Hubble and a uh, team in uh, South America was able to pick up uh, uh, the occultation uh, using the new uh, elements. We still don't have the full data from that yet. We'll have to wait with bated breath to learn more about the, size, the true size and shape of uh, MU69, New Horizons, New Target. But uh, it's, it's again, this comes to how the internet really has affected astronomy, where this is, again, a pro-amateur collaboration where they were able to mobilise teams of, of astronomers to set up a picket fence of telescopes to observe directly across the uh, path to be able to pick up the occultation and uh, determine the size and shape of this uh, remote object for an upcoming mission. And I'm, I'm not going to leave the theme of uh, occultations, even though my attention is slightly different. Now that we've got the MU69 results in, another uh, group of amateur astronomers uh, managed to get an occultation of an asteroid called 113 Amalthea, uh, not to be confused with the moon of Jupiter, and uh, by doing this, they picked up not only the asteroid itself, but they managed to discover a moon of Amalthea. And again, coming back to my theme of using relatively simple equipment by uh, groups of amateurs using a fairly simple telescope strung out along a uh, occultation pathway, were able to determine the shape of the asteroid and discover it had a moon. And that's, that's pretty amazing. For, uh, you know, no spacecraft were involved just ordinary people with ordinary telescopes working together and helped a bit by the internet. So, um, again, this comes back to uh, what we're talking about, about pro-app uh, collaboration, citizen science, and how ordinary everyday people can make uh, interesting discoveries uh, without really fancy equipment. But my tangent is actually about asteroids, but it's about asteroids which really aren't. And there's a, a, an object which has a, a asteroidal nomenclature, 2008 uh, GO98. Now that's been in the news because all of a sudden it started displaying cometary characteristics. It's a one of a group of asteroids uh, that are called uh, part of the Hilda family, and started showing a coma uh, and a tail, it's a typical uh, cometary coma and a tail. Now we've seen what appears to be like cometary activity in asteroids before. For example, there was a asteroid called 596 Sheila back in 2011 where apparently a cometary coma was observed. But after a lot of observation and watching the evolution of the coma, it was decided that this was in fact a collision between the asteroid and some other object. But for 2008 go 9 it looks like it really is uh, a comet, and again, talking about how the internet and social media has helped people who were able to, as soon as the coma was discovered, people were able to be alerted, taking a lot more energy, confirming the coma. It's long-lasting and is uh, still showing uh, cometary activity. This looks like a genuine cometary object, so it's been really, really interesting.
0: Fantastic, Ian. It's been wonderful speaking with you again. Thank you very much, Dr. Ian Musgrove, for giving us an introduction to the world of amateur astronomy and astrophotography. Our listeners should follow at Ian F. Musgrave on Twitter and subscribe to Ian's Astro blog. It's free and fabulous. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you, Brendan, for having me on. We'll catch you later. Okay, thanks, Ian. Yeah, no worries. Bye. And now the news for Thursday the 27th of July. This first report is from my broadband in South Africa. The Square Kilometre Array, SKA, has reached yet another milestone with a significant development that cements the way towards the second phase construction of this colossal telescope. The Ghanaian and South African governments on Thursday announced a combination of first light science observation which confirms the successful conversion of the Ghana comms antenna from a redundant telecoms instrument into a functioning VLBI radio telescope. Ghana is the first partner country of the African Very Large Baseline Interferometer, the VLBI network, the AVN, to complete the conversion of a comms antenna into a functioning radio telescope. This 32-metre converted telecommunications antenna will be integrated into the African VLBI in preparation for the second phase construction of the SKA across the African continent. The combination of first-light science observations included methanol, Maser detections, VLBI fringe testing, and Pulsar observations. Reaching these three objectives confirms that the instrument can operate as a single-dish radio telescope and also as part of global VLBI network observations, such as the European VLBI network, which we're talking about in a couple of episodes when we interview Dr. Hayley Bignall, who's worked on that European VLBI network. Next up, a heads up for our next episode, where we'll be talking with Dr. Alice Gorman about the Voyager mission. And to help prepare for that, listeners might find out a bit more about Voyager by going to tinyurlcom forward slash astrovoyager, all one word, all lowercase. This website explains the instruments that are on board Voyagers 1 and 2. And finally, for those that are interested in radio telescopes, there's a fantastic explanation of how non-optical telescopes see the universe in Cosmos magazine. So just find Cosmos magazine. It's online and online put in non-optical into the search box up the top there and it's a fabulous explanation. Go and check it out. Bye now. Our next episode is in two weeks. Radio Wave!